What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I will serve you for life. I don't need a servant, Snowboss. My life is solitude, and I return to it shortly. If you seek a teacher, you must look elsewhere. I wish you'd give some of these intern applicants more of a chance, Adam. You are the only student I have time for, Josh. Lucky me. Michelle Yeoh in that clip from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, reprising her role as Yu Shu Len from the film's 2000 Oscar-winning predecessor. Our review of the Netflix-distributed sequel and a guest expert joins us for the top five to shed some light on the wuxia genre Crouching Tiger belongs to. That and more. Thank you, teacher. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is presented by Audible.com. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting to get a free 30-day trial. That's audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. We'll have a few audiobook recommendations coming up in the next break. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films in honor of last weekend's Oscars. Mubi is hosting a five-day, five-film takeover of best foreign language film winners, including Cinema Paradiso and The Barbarian Invasions. Josh, we got a wonderful note along with a donation from a listener in Lake in the Hills, Illinois, West. Wesley Harrison, who had a nice testimonial for Mubi. He said, I would love to give a shout out to my beautiful fiance who gifted me with a year's subscription of Mubi. I love the setup of Mubi and how it gifts subscribers with one selection a day. In a growing marketplace of streaming movies where there are too many movies to pick from, it's so nice to have a provider that makes the choice for me. And as a result, my eyes are open to numerous works of art around the world that I never would have noticed. Some notable selections that I've recently enjoyed are Detropia and Durakovo, Village of Fools. Familiar with either of those? I'm familiar with Detropia because we promoted it a few weeks ago. The other one, not familiar with at all. And I think Wesley's right. That is one of the beautiful things about Mubi is the way they are going to curate those choices for you and present you with movies that even people who claim to be cinephiles and critics like us are surprised by sometimes, Josh. As Wesley said, everyday movies curators introduce a new title, then you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. This week, we get around to congratulating Leo on his big Oscar win as we share our reactions to Sunday's Academy Awards, plus the return of Film Spotting Madness. It's finally here, Josh. And my favorite kind of top five, one where I get to sit around and listen to someone far more informed than me. And that won't be me either. Not in this case. No. No. We're bringing someone on who is far more of an expert in this particular field than either of us. Inspired by our review of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, we've invited a longtime friend of the show and a fellow podcaster to share his top five wuxia films. Wuxia being a popular subgenre of martial arts films that has a long tradition in China, the original Crouching Tiger being probably the best-known example to Western audiences. That top five with Sean Gilman and more later in the show. But first, Netflix is doing its part to bring wuxia films to bigger audiences by partly producing and distributing that Crouching Tiger sequel. Adam and I watched it via that platform, and we'll discuss whether the enterprise is worthy of the original. 
explain how a man returns from the dead. We were to wed. I mourned for you. Julia. That name is not yours to speak. I was dead before that duel. Long before. I did it for you and Li Mubai. I knew you loved him. Not me. 16 years after Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Adam, in a very different movie landscape where big-name sequels premiere on new viewing platforms like Netflix, we get Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. This sequel to the Ang Lee blockbuster has a new director, Yuen Wuping, who was the action choreographer for Lee's film, and a mostly new cast. One returning face is that of Michelle Yeoh as Yu Shulen, a solitary warrior who is once again called upon to protect the legendary sword of the title when it is coveted by a marauding warlord. In Yeo and Yuen, two crucial pieces from the original film seem to be in place then for a project that would honor its predecessor. And honor is a key theme in both films and in the larger wuxia genre. Adam, did you come away from Sword of Destiny feeling as if you had seen a student paying homage to his or her master? Or did the movie strike you as it did me as more of an act of opportunism? Hmm. I don't know how truly opportunistic you can be if you go 16 years between releases. But I think you also have to admit that all sequels on some level reek of opportunism, right, regardless of quality. And it certainly would bolster the opportunism claim that you could pretty much give Yo's character hear a different name, and remove all references to Li Mu Bai, the Chow Yun-Fat character, her unrequited love, the forbidden love from the previous film, and you wouldn't fundamentally alter this film at all. So it doesn't need to be rooted in that crouching tiger, hidden dragon lore, really, except for the fact that it helps sell it. That history simply doesn't carry much weight in the narrative here. And I know this is going to be the most backhanded compliment ever, but it is a compliment. I think this movie is precisely as good as you would expect a movie to be called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. It surpasses it, the word count for <laughs> well, I don't know. expectations. I don't know if I'm going there, but it suggests that the filmmakers took something that was mysterious and mystical and magical and mashed it up with something pretty common and cliche. I wish this film was more mysterious and less cliche. I wish it had a lot more magic in it. But like Crouching Tiger... I think its heart is ultimately in the right place, which isn't to say that the love stories in Sword of Destiny are anywhere as close to satisfying as the one between Chow Yun-Fat and Michelle Yeoh in the first movie. They're simply not. I can't imagine anyone would argue otherwise. But I think Yuan Wuping's heart is in those fight scenes. There is conviction in those fight scenes. I think that's really probably the best word instead of heart, conviction. And that conviction was enough for me, Josh. So I'm saying honor. Honor. Yeah, I am. You're positive on this. I'm positive huh? on this movie. All right. I, You know, I think it suffers greatly, and I don't know if you had a chance to do this, when in direct comparison to Crouching Tiger, there, there is such a gap. And I did watch Crouching Tiger about two days before I saw this. Mm-hmm. I was really excited for this. It, like you, it snuck up on me. But when I heard about it, I thought, I, I could use a sequel to that. You know, it's been a while. Um, sure, let's do it. And the gap is huge. The gap is really big for some of the reasons you talked about. Everything that resonates and makes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon special 
like really special mm-hmm. within the other. I haven't seen a ton of Wuxia films, but within the other ones that I have seen and just on its own terms as its own sort of movie, everything is just weaker here. It's thinner. It's mm-hmm. it, it doesn't resonate as much. And that is really distressing. And it makes it feel like it is opportunistic then because they took those elements. They took the sword. They took Michelle Yeoh and they took the floating. There's a lot of floating here, as there was <laughs> yeah. in Crouching Tiger. And they've got those, and they figured, we're good to go. Let's just make something that's serviceable. Now, I agree with you mm. in the conviction, um, because you know this is not a matter of Yuan just getting a shot to be a director. He's directed almost 30 films. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen just one of those, Iron Monkey, and I remember it to be entertaining as well. But I think there's a real distinct difference here between the choreography of some of these fight scenes and the direction of them. And I'm only using, again, the original Crouching Tiger and Sword of Destiny as a test case here, having seen them close together. And what it strikes me is that there is an inventiveness and a precision to the choreography in Sword of Destiny that I agree has conviction, it has uh, beauty, and it has Mm -hmm. interest. But there's a missing element in how that ultimately is portrayed as a whole. In other words, not just the movements that the actors are making. And we Mm -hmm. should also note that there are two different editors on these two films. So maybe it's not fair to just place this in the field of the director's skills. Yet I would say that things like intent or motivation in each of these fights are communicated much more broadly and clearly than they are in Lee's film. Mm -hmm. In other words, all of these are mini stories. There's something going on in each fight. That's what I liked about Mm -hmm. them. Uh, But here, that's really clearly stated and overstated. I think the glances where two fighters are looking at each other, they're held just a beat too long. The pauses take up too much space. Even something like slow motion, which Lee and his filmmaking team They do use that. They Mm -hmm. use slow motion. But here it's drawn out and used more often and more overtly. So the the overall difference to me is that the fight scenes here, they they felt like they're being explained to us. Uh And and this maybe gets into another point we should talk about is who is the intended audience for this. I feel like these fight scenes are being explained to us where the ones that Lee directed were – they were very clear yet still had this enigmatic quality to them Mm -hmm. where we couldn't quite – it was somehow taking place – in uh, this metaphysical space and not in this clearly choreographed one that sort of destiny is. I agree with everything you're saying in comparing it to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon from 2000, at least my recollection of that film. Where we disagree is just purely in how that influenced ultimately our experience with this movie. And even if I had had the ability to make the choice to watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or not, to refresh myself on it, I wouldn't have done it. For me, it sort of fits into that same category of reading the book ahead of time or watching the original film when a film has been remade. I think it can make for a more robust critical analysis, as it clearly has provided a lot of fodder for you if you were going to do a rhetorical analysis of different styles of direction, of editing, or maybe just do a sequence analysis where you take a particular scene or moment and compare how they're conceived and constructed, that can be really fruitful. I don't know that it's necessarily reflective of the basic experience of watching the movie. And the reality is it's just not a fair fight. It's just not a fair fight to compare the two films too strongly because I think few movies are going to live up to that magic, there's that word again, of Crouching Tiger. This one, you're right, it simply doesn't have the formal or the narrative elegance the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon had. On the narrative side, this movie has a lot of characters and a lot of subplots and 
I think overall it juggles them pretty well, at least for the sheer number of characters and subplots. But in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you had that wonderful love story between Michelle Yeoh and Xiao Yun-Fat, as I said. And then you also had the Ziyi Zhang subplot where she was kind of like, you know, a young Jedi apprentice who was torn between her darker impulses and maybe the more righteous way. And those two storylines and the way they come together is the stuff of poetry. I think that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon really is. This film certainly doesn't have that same balletic quality to it. It's more kinetic. It's trying to wow you and I think thrill you more directly. And it is less about what's happening between the characters and more about the movement itself. But I I didn't feel like it was empty, Josh. I don't think it's devoid of that kind of emotional back and forth. And I think of one scene like one that happens maybe about three quarters of the way through the film where two characters and then ultimately three characters have a fight on a sheet of ice, a big lake that is frozen over. And there's artistry in the movement, the attention to the details of the way we watch how they land and how they slide and the way the ice is breaking underneath them. But there's also a sense that the character in the scene, the good guy in that scene who is Silent Wolf, that he doesn't necessarily want to hurt. I think his name's Tai Feng the young man who has come initially to steal the sword, there's enough emotional weight and there's enough going on between the characters, between the movement that it felt to me like more than just spectacle. And I guess to go back to your word, more than just serviceable. And the key scene I'll point out, the one that I think if this one doesn't work for you or doesn't really move you in some way, then the whole film probably won't, is one that is really reminiscent of the scene I think we both felt was the standout scene in the Wong Kar Wai movie, The Grandmaster, which we reviewed a few years ago here, where Tony Leung and Ji Zhang meet each other. I said it was the best meet cute or one of the best meet cutes in cinema history because she's there to restore honor to her family by defeating him. And he throws out the condition that they have to fight and he'll lose if he breaks anything. So it heightens everything that's going on, the precision and the control of their movements. And what I put in my notes at the time is that we're so focused on them not only as fighters, but we're watching these two characters undergo a dramatic change and they're forging a life-changing connection all while trying to hurt each other. And about 13 or 14 minutes into this film, there's a similar sequence between the Taifeng character and Snowvase. Is that? Snowvase. Snowvase is what they call her, who's a similar character in some ways to the Zhi Zhang character in Crouching Tiger. And it doesn't have the same intensity or the same sense of seduction to it, but those elements are there. You have two adversaries. They're both battling for the title sort of destiny. And they share a mutual desire to get away with the sword without waking up the entire neighborhood. So they're trying to be very quiet, very similar to the Grandmaster. They're trying not to break anything, right? And so you'll get these pauses that I think are held perfectly where they kind of are forced to look at each other in this moment of furious fighting and take each other in. And then there'll be another flurry of fighting and then a dramatic pause just as a vase is about to fall to the floor. And yes, it's in slow motion, but at that last second, her foot will stretch out and catch the vase and safely lower it. And then they're back to fighting again. And I think that was all a real treat. Something else that makes it a real treat is they're linked, Josh, not just in their desire to beat the other for the sword, but they're literally physically linked by the sword itself. Throughout that entire fight, they both always have at least one hand on the sword. So they're not just constrained by the need for silence. 
but also by their refusal to relinquish the sword. And that makes it even more thrilling. It forces them to be more creative with their movements. I haven't seen a fight scene play out exactly like that in terms of the proximity of the two combatants to each other and the way they move around each other because they're hooked together. They're basically stuck together. And actually, on a poetic level, it does set up the rest of the film. Well, that, and that's where the cleverness of the choreography comes in. That's certainly an element to every fight scene that's in this movie. But, you know, the, the Grand Master is another one that you don't really want to compare <laughs> to this because this is just not going to be able to hold up at all. I mm-hmm. think I would disagree with you overall that close comparisons when it comes to sequels or reboots or anything, to, for that matter, mm-hmm. um, can't be really fruitful to the experience you have of a film. You know, I think if anything, it might illuminate why you're responding to a film a little bit less than you had anticipated mm-hmm. or had wanted to. And that, well, you know, that he- was the way. A digression. Here's a digression. But I think what I would suggest, my prime experience would be to watch Sword of Destiny without having Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in my mind at all, because it will completely cloud how I view the film. I'll be comparing them the whole time. I think it will make it more of an intellectual experience. It doesn't mean that it's not fruitful. No, I understand It's going to make it more intellectual. What I would like to do, Josh, is then watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon again after I've seen Sword of Destiny. And then if I revisit Sword of Destiny, I'd like to do it that way and directly compare them and have a really fruitful conversation about what one gets right and what the other doesn't or whatever. But I just would like to take in the movie. I think for me, I want to give the movie a fair shake. No, I get it. It's about, yeah, it's the same question, but it's a matter of the process. And I guess when Mm -hmm. I'm having that experience with a film, it's nice to have the tools at hand. I'd rather have those tools at hand. I I don't, I wouldn't say use the term clouds my judgment at all or, or put certain expectations on it. It's Hmm. what it's doing is putting me in that world. I mean, this is a movie that's coming out of a specific world. And so I want to return to that world. I want to have that world to an extent Mm -hmm. in my head and then see, okay, what are these filmmakers going to do? I don't think you're wrong. for your it. approach, and I just disagree with your approach. <laughs> I, I understand, uh, and and so I won't spend a lot of time then on comparing the two because uh, you know if if that's not uh, as fruitful for you, it's it's not worth getting too in depth. But I will say, listing some of those other cast members, you can feel a real void, and you can see a real void in what Michelle Yeoh gives to her performance here when she doesn't have. Zizong to play off of or Chow Yun Fat to play off of. I mm-hmm. mean, there, there's a real lacking in these scenes. Again, that I would recognize if I hadn't revisited Crouching Tiger, I would see that, that there's just not much here between these actors. And then having the other one in mind, I can remember how she would look just slightly off screen mm-hmm. from Chow Yun Fat's face because she didn't want to recognize what he was directly telling her. Yeah. And that she's not getting anything back in this movie so, to work off of. So again, it's a though, flat performance. Yeah, again, though, it's all about okay, I'll, let degree. Me set that aside. Let yeah. me set that aside and get to the text at hand then, okay. um, of sort of destiny. And I think one of the problems is this question of who might it have been aimed for? Okay. Not people who just watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I, I would argue. I, I think it's being aimed for a global audience in a way that even though Ang Lee is something of a Western filmmaker and already was at the time of making Crouching Tiger, you know, he had a Western audience in mind. This seems to be much more specifically wanting to polish the edges, smooth away everything so that it could be palatable. And I think that's distinctly to the movie's detriment. And the first thing is that it's in English. I, the, the And that the accents of the actors are all over the place. The mm. actress didn't who really plays, at all. The actress who plays Snow Vase, I believe, is Australian. Mm-hmm. And that's different from someone else in the film. So I, I thought that was distracting as well. I think the emphasis on where the action is placed and how much importance is given to the action mm-hmm. in the narrative disrupts this from being something 
that can be much more than a spectacle of choreographed scenes. Those yeah. have their value mm-hmm. and they're they're fairly well done in their choreography, but they do feel like this is why we're all here, right? So let's just get to it. Yeah. There's something inelegant about that. And Agreed. perhaps it's most glaring misstep is the use of CGI. Because to me, going back to wanting to be in that world, even if I had not revisited Crouching Tiger, I would have known instantly that I was not on a set with a fake background. They do use some natural landscapes, but those only really expose the fake backgrounds in the other scenes. Mm -hmm. Even that ice sequence that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. yes, the choreography was very well managed there. But never for a minute did I believe that they were anywhere real because the entire background is sort of this false gray that I don't know that we really... I'm watching it on a TV anyway. At some point, it's hard for me to distinguish too much how cinematic it is, to be honest. Well, it, I mean, and I it didn't really notice be, it. it I be incredibly I personally didn't notice it until you're talking about the CGI until the end. There's a big climactic showdown at the end where. Some characters. Most of it's on green screen. Yeah, you can you can tell yeah. that there's sort of castle like structure, and it feels fake. So but, there's that. But cliff. I didn't feel that way with the other scenes. I certainly didn't feel that way with the one I singled out, the scene that I'll refer to as the pub scene, where we meet the ragtag band of good guys yeah, is going to come one, to the rescue. That one's That's lived great. In. Great humor, great attention to detail. The uh, choreography is wonderful. The characters, I liked all those characters it's a, it's there. A, it's a little jokey. But let's go to it's the very start where there's that cliff that comes back into play a few times in the movie. Mm-hmm. And everything beyond that cliff is fake OCGI. See, I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I did feel, Josh, and maybe we are noticing the same thing. We're just placing a different emphasis on it. I noticed that it had a veneer of being too vivid. It did feel a little too hyper real, but that didn't suggest to me necessarily that the location itself wasn't real, just the way they chose to visualize it. In other words, the way that they shot it, literally, whatever lenses they were using, however they lit the scene, even though they're outdoors, however they chose to shoot it, they clearly tried to make it as vivid as possible to a point where it started to feel a little too fantastic. Well, often I think it would be a combination of using an actual foreground landscape Mm -hmm. and then doctoring up the background to make it look more vast and look more epic. And Mm -hmm. that's where something's lost because I I felt like I'm I'm watching a sci-fi channel production on a soundstage. Yeah, I noticed that in... Like I said, maybe the way that the colors came through and also in that end scene. But there were a lot of scenes in between where I didn't feel it. And I think there was just enough attention to the characters and certainly enough conviction in those fight scenes. I'm surprised that the acting bothered you as much or that the English bothered you as much. It really didn't with me at all, though. Funny story. Not preparing at all to watch the movie, meaning I don't want to read anything about it, don't want to know anything about it. I literally just became aware that this movie existed about two weeks ago, I think, when we discussed reviewing it. When I brought it up on Netflix, I saw that there were options. I mean, I immediately heard people talking in English, just heard it. And I went to subtitles and audio and I changed it like any self-respecting cinephile would to (laughs) to Chinese and English subtitles. And then I started watching it. And Curiously, the lips seemed way off mm-hmm. and with the sound and the subtitles were way behind and it was an awful experience. And I realized, oh, OK, they're speaking English. And mm-hmm. I, I was surprised, actually, at how effective it was. And I think, yo, you're right. Again, it's it's about degree. It's about how much you want to compare it or not. I well, don't it's think, about, no, it's it's about good acting. No, Those aren't but well this is what I'm scenes. saying. This it's is what not I'm a saying. Comparison. I think they. I think that there is good acting. Is my whole point, Josh. I think that her scenes, where I was getting 
to is that her scenes with the Silent Wolf character are not bad scenes in any way, shape, or form. Michelle Yeoh is too good of an actress to phone in a scene, and I think that actor, Donnie Yen, is really good as well. I think it's the narrative that lets them down. I think it's a case where there's too much of exactly what you said. Lots of fights, lots of fights, lots of fights, and in between, we're going to get some character interaction, and we're going to get a lot of flashbacks, and we're going to get a lot of story that's going to fill in the blanks on things, and it doesn't feel as cohesive, and certainly, a word we both use, as elegant. But that doesn't mean in those scenes between those two performers that they're not bringing a level of conviction, of legitimate emotion and legitimate acting force. I I feel it. It's not there the way we want it to, the way Crouching Tiger brought it. That's because the whole movie and the whole story was simply better. And this isn't as good. It isn't. Well, it, it brings up the issue of delicacy even in, as a director, what a director can bring in terms of delicacy between two characters because that is supposed to be really between Lucien and Silent Wolf, the dominant main mm-hmm. relationship. Right. And it just does not have it that heft. No. And they're not giving terrible performances. That's not what I'm saying. But there's there's nothing to respond to in each other. And whether or not it's because the narrative is thin or too convoluted or the time isn't given to their scenes mm-hmm. or the scenes are placed as filler. I think there's largely a structural problem here, which mm-hmm. could be part of the script, perhaps. You know, it's it's just definitely a problem to my enjoyment of the experience. Now, this wasn't, you know, I've praised the choreography to a degree and this wasn't a complete loss for me. So I do want to mention a few of the scenes that I did think worked. And one of them comes very early on, which is when Shulen is in her caravan traveling and she gets beset upon by these bandits. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love her explosion out the top of the canvas roof of the caravan mm-hmm. and does this nice bit. It's, they're using the idea of floating from the other film here and right. giving it a little bit more of uh, their own touch and the fabric from her gown spins in a way so that the sun is caught catching through it. So there is definitely some moments of real beauty. And even sure. the CGI is occasionally used. You know, there was a little bit of CGI in the original Crouching Tiger. And here it can be used in certain instances to heighten the supernatural element in that climactic battle sequence, which I think doesn't work overall. But there's mm-hmm. a nice little touch where Shulen is facing off against this prophetess figure. Yeah. And she's kind of made herself, made five versions yeah, of herself. And Shulen has to listen you use that skill, which mm-hmm. she's talked about to her student before, so that she can detect which one is the real physical adversary. And I thought that was just a, a really nice touch, it again, is. using the choreography in an inventive way. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. Probably not worth venturing out to an IMAX screen to see it. I would certainly say that, but I think there are worse ways to spend your Friday or Saturday night than watching it on Netflix, which is how most people will probably see it. It is available. Now, if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll consider a few other long-delayed sequels when we come back and reveal the results of the film spotting poll. And even though I went to bed early and I don't think Adam watched any of it. True story. We'll also share a few thoughts about the Oscars. Stay with us. Skin and bones, you never did come home. Crashing on my heart through the telephone I remember the tall grass waving In past lives, old poems I must have lived a lifetime without you You must have ended up somebody's angel I remember you loving the radio New waves and old stones Hey, hey, little Tommy gun I guess we're never gonna end 
song I lost most of myself pleasing everyone I had to learn how to begin again It's alright, move on Hey, hey little Tommy Gun I guess we're never gonna end up the lucky one Brief interruption here to say thanks to Audible.com for supporting this episode of Film Spotting, Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks, as listeners have told us, are great to listen to whenever you're doing things like driving in traffic, on the subway or on the bus, or just doing chores around the house. That's when I've listened to them. Also at the gym, doing errands, shopping, anything like that. And for film spotting listeners, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. It's that easy. couple recommendations as promised. First of all, I have downloaded it, just started listening to A.O. Scott's new book. Of course, the great critic from the New York Times has the cheekily titled book, Better Living Through Criticism, out. Can't wait to get through more of that book from A.O. Scott. And also the new Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. This is an Audible Studios production, an audio performance starring Scarlett Johansson. It's available for download now. It stars, Josh, actually, the Johansson sisters, Vanessa and Scarlett. They've lent their talents to the screen stage and now to audiobooks. Vanessa, who is a seasoned voice actor, is actually directing Scarlett here. She brings the memorable madcap characters of Carol's Wonderland, The White Rabbit, Queen of Hearts, Cheshire Cat, and more to life. This sounds right up the Larson family alley, Josh. I was just thinking, road trip coming up. There you go. I have to get this. You can get a free 30-day trial of Audible at audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. That's audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. I can't imagine right now, I know it's just November, I can't imagine this movie doesn't win Best Picture. And Hmm. I would be okay with that. I think for once, a Best Picture frontrunner, if it is Spotlight, it deserves to be in that position. And the Oscar goes to... Spotlight. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Josh, I'm sorry I have to make an announcement here on the show. This is where I leave Film Spotting forever <laughs> to go seek my fame and fortune as an Oscar pundit, an Oscar You're be predictor. A prognosticator. Yeah. You're going to be on those morning news shows, showing up in a tux once a year. That's what I'm going for. I called it. I called it way back in November, episode 564. Somehow Spotlight played second banana to our review of Mockingjay Part 2. Sometimes we really make the wrong choice in main review. We would both agree with that after reviewing Mockingjay Part 2. I thought Spotlight was surely going to win Best Picture, and somehow it did. And even though we were not joking at all, or at least I assume you weren't joking when you said you went to bed early— in the tease, I, oh, I definitely did. did not watch any of the Oscars. <laughs> I almost never do watch any of the Oscars, and I've mostly just tried to avoid it all day long. I did pick up a little bit on Twitter. I have the results in front of me, so I can't claim to be completely clueless. I guess you knew this was coming. The best thing I can say, besides the fact that it was really fun seeing Mad Max Fury Road or hearing that Mad Max Fury Road won six awards, even if it was mostly technical, that seemed to be a big surprise. And I love that movie, so I'm glad it got that recognition. I'm, of course, with our colleague Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show, who tweeted out, an inspiring Best Picture win for all caps, anything but The Revenant. If you haven't seen it, anything but The Revenant is worth checking out. 
Here, here, Scott. Yes, yes. Let's keep piling on the revenant because <laughs> that <laughs> would never, never gets old. The most critically underappreciated, really good movie in a long Ugh. time. I can't wait for the reassessment of that in a couple of years once people have gotten Inyaritu out of their system. But I actually won the Oscar pool really that we had going on uh, while we were watching it with some family at my house, even though it ended early because I chose Spotlight. And I thought about your prediction, but I mm-hmm. also had just revisited it the night before. And, you know, it just struck me, like, not only, as we said the first time, is it really good, mm-hmm. but as the perfect Oscar picture, which you were getting at. It yeah. really was. And it seemed to me if they weren't going to go with Revenant as best picture because they had to back off a little bit on Inyari 2 after Birdman from last year, that that was the direction they'd go. So um, predicted Spotlight as the winner. Glad to see it, even though I do like The Revenant better and I like Mad Max Fury Road better. But... All three really strong films, and it was good to see Spotlight get the win. I guess another surprise, Mark Rylance. That was a surprise. Upset Sly. We mm-hmm. all thought maybe he would get the nostalgia vote or the sentimental vote there for his performance in Creed, which I think is really good. I probably actually would have picked Stallone ahead of Rylance, and I really love Mark Rylance's performance in Bridge of Spies. Alicia Vikander for the Danish girl, though I think we all secretly are just going to pretend that it was really for Ex Machina instead <laughs> That'd be nice. than the Danish girl. I wish we could just somehow change that on the statuette. I don't know what else stood out to you. Obviously, my beloved Big Short winning Best Adapted Screenplay. I'm glad it got something. And I do love Amy, the documentary about Amy Winehouse. I actually rated it higher or placed it higher on my end of the year list. It was in my top 15 ahead of Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, but I love The Look of Silence, too, so I'm a little bit torn there. I want to see someone like Oppenheimer, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more in a minute, get that kind of recognition from the Academy, but I love Amy. It was my favorite doc of the year, so happy to see that. For me, it was you know pretty much a foregone conclusion, but it was good to see Lubezki get that nod. That's the Revenant Award mm-hmm. I really wanted because I think the cinematography is the true star of the film. You know, Leo's fine, and I think the direction deserves more credit than it gets. But really, that movie is made by its astounding cinematography. And see, that was, of course, a tough one for me because I remember when we were voting at various points in different ballots throughout the year, Chicago Film Critics Association. I love Lubezki, and I recognize his talent, and I'm sure I picked him to win for Gravity and wanted him to win for Gravity. Again, recognize the artistry of Birdman, recognize the technical artistry of The Revenant, it doesn't mean I enjoyed any second, really, of watching what he's doing with the camera, whether that's his choice or whether I blame Inyari too for The Revenant. It's an achievement. It's not my favorite achievement of the year, without a doubt. Since I did watch some of the program, I guess I can speak a little bit to, you know, Rock and what he brought to it, Chris Rock as the host. I, I thought it was good. I, you know, liked a lot of the things he had to say, but it got to this weird point. I... The reason I gave up is I became exhausted by how this whole playing out of how was Chris Rock going to respond to the Oscar so white controversy? Mm-hmm. You know, he had some smart things to say about it, some good gags about it. And initially you could notice that a lot of the people in the audience were uncomfortable. Like, well, he's, he's go- exactly right. Yeah. So that's what we want to see. But it was really strange how after the first barrage came out and they all survived, like they weren't yanked out of their seats or whatever they were afraid of. It got into this routine where he'd do another gag about it and kind of make fun of the fact that Hollywood is not diverse. And they'd cut to the audience and everyone would laugh. This largely white audience would laugh. And 
they got a little more sure about their laughter as the night went on and even more sure about their laughter. And it just seemed to be this dead end. Like they became more and more comfortable with the fact that, yeah, we're not diverse and he's making fun of it and it's funny and this is a great night. Are you and there saying was something that weird about Tarantino that. directed these Oscars? <laughs> Josh? No, I don't think so. Mm. I hope not. I will say the most radical moment, I don't know if you've heard about this bit yet, is when Rock brought out his daughter's Girl Scout troop to sell Girl Scout cookies. Mm. And that to me, I don't think he meant anything political about it. But essentially what you had was these six or seven black kids come into the audience. These these were not the prescribed, you know, let's bring out every African-American Oscar nominee or winner from the past many years, get them to be presenters or put them in a seat. This was a much more natural infusion of diversity, of unplanned diversity. Mm -hmm. And by selling the cookies, he made these Hollywood people like actually interact with these Mm -hmm. kids, you know, and recognize them as people. And that was just that was kind of a lovely moment. But that was about at the midway point. Then they got into that lull there always is before they give like the last four or five big awards. Mm -hmm. I, I think by the time I saw some minions coming out, it was like, <laughs> I can't do it. I yeah. can't do it this year. Yeah. I just I just avoided it from the beginning. I, I chose to instead take my two oldest kids to 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70 millimeter at the music box. That was my, I guess, sort of protest against the Oscars. I, I don't begrudge anybody. I'm not trying to be holier than thou who watches the Oscars. Yeah, I, I usually like watching them. I just don't enjoy it. I, I just, I've just never enjoyed it. So I skipped it this year as well. I'm glad that you were able to weigh in a little bit there, at least on how the ceremony went. Speaking of The Revenant and speaking of Quentin Tarantino, it's time to plug a little bit of film spotting premium content. It's not out yet, Josh, but as of the time everyone hears this, it will be out and have it will have been out for a few days. Can we oh, really I'll never call listen to it. it. Premium? <laughs> I will I will never <laughs> is this listen false to advertising. It. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. But it is indeed ninety minutes or so of bonus oh, film spotting. And fortunately, if you get tired, as you surely should, of me talking or Josh talking, really even though it's our voices, it's the listeners talking. The listeners were the, feedback. the bedrock of this feedback. We're calling it, I hear what you're saying, but. And <laughs> it's 90 minutes of feedback and our responses and really round two through 12, hopefully, Ugh. of that battle that we had about those two films, me much preferring The Hateful Eight, you much preferring The Revenant. So the listeners are really the star of that one. But if you didn't feel like round one was enough when we discussed those films a few weeks back, well... It's out there. It's on Bandcamp, and we will link to it in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We do a little bit of rehashing of our arguments, but like you said, it's mostly sharing listeners' opinions and theories Mm -hmm. and also some spoiler talk. I think we get into a few things that we didn't have time for. Definitely make sure you've seen both films. Yes, in the original review. So, yeah, let us know what you think of that. You see the picture of Ed Lipsky in the paper? You see it on Tuesday? In Tuesday's paper? Yeah, that was terrible. He was all shot up. His neck was broken. You see that? uh, You know, nobody thought you had anything to do with Lipsky, Nick. You're in the clear. There's a contract on. Next week on the show, we are going to get to the third film in our Elaine May marathon. It is Mikey and Nikki, starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. You can start getting prepared now if you are a member of Fandor. It's available there. It is also available via Netflix. Not streaming, but regular DVD. Mikey and Nikki, the third film, coming up next week. And the top five 
to be determined. Maybe we'll share a couple of the topics we're kicking around at the end of the show. Let's get to the film spotting poll a couple weeks back, inspired by the 15-year gap between Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and the new Sword of Destiny. Our guest hosts, Tasha Robinson and Michael Phillips, asked you, what is the best long-delayed sequel? Flawed flawed poll as usual here on film spotting we'll get to why again here in a moment the choices were the color of money sequel to 1961's the hustler mad max fury road made 29 years after mad max beyond thunderdome star wars the force awakens of course out 10 years after revenge of the sith or 32 years after jedi depending on how you look at it toy story 11 years after 1999's toy story 2 or other one we forgot to include in the poll josh how did it come out other received 3% of the vote. The Color of Money received 5% of the vote. Together here in the middle, Star Wars The Force Awakens with 13% and Toy Story 3 with 16% of the vote. But by far the winner, 63% of the vote went to Mad Max Fury Road. So this just hit me right now, though, and I've obviously already looked at these results. Toy Story 3 beat The Force Awakens. Yeah. I mean, that's well, a little bit surprising. I know how much people love it. I love Toy Story 3, but... It would have been between those two for me, out. too, though. Mm. I mean, liked Force Awakens well enough, but really, Toy Story 3 is maybe the best of that trilogy, mm. perhaps. I do love and that film. Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, it's it's riding a high of this year, so yeah. not surprised that it wins. We heard from Kennedy in Vancouver. Why is this a poll? Is there any <laughs> doubt which flick Film Spotting Nation will come out for? Probably more so than all others combined. Well, I like Fury Road too, but I'm a lifetime all Star Wars to a fault sort. So that's getting my vote. Oh, look at the early results. Fury Road more than doubling all others put together. Well, I didn't predict that, Kennedy says. And if we do the math, yes, 63% to 37% for the rest. So Fury Road not quite doubling all of the others combined, but pretty darn close. Now, how would it have come out if I had remembered to include this film, not just as other, but actually put it out there for listeners to consider? Blake in Idaho writes, hopefully it counts. I went with Before Sunset. Yeah, and we How did, did I forget men- it? We did mention that one, though. Yeah, last week. So it, I'm surprised the, the was other done. option wasn't <laughs> bigger given that. But yeah. yeah, maybe it was too late. Nathan from Austin said, I know I'm in the silent minority on this one because I don't think I have found anyone who agrees with me on this. But Mad Max Fury Road really didn't do it for me. <gasps> I won't go into detail about what kept me from liking the film from fear that my IP address will be uncovered and I won't wake up one of these mornings, but I had to say something. There are dozens of us, dozens. Anyway, my vote went to Toy Story 3. Equal parts brutally honest and incessantly hopeful, Toy Story 3 made me cry giant childhood tears and does every time I watch it. I can't help loving that film and I don't want to. Zach and Queens obviously have to go Fury Road, but wanted to comment to give some love for Fantasia 2000. The Gershwin-scored, Hirschfeld-inspired sequence alone is enough to consider it a great sequel. It may not be as good as Toy Story 3 either, but the 59-year gap in between entries seems to be worth mentioning. Now, I've brought this up on the show before, maybe once or twice, but a long time ago. I cannot hear Fantasia 2000 without thinking of one of my favorite SNL skits ever. And for whatever reason, it's really hard to find online, but it's basically making fun of film critics or Gene Shalit type film mm-hmm. critics. Ben Affleck was the host. He's in it. He's a round table of film critics. There's six or seven of them. And they just go around the room talking about their favorite films, the best films of the year. And I think it's Affleck. And he's like, Fantasia 2000 is fantas great. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'll still use that term sometimes completely out of context just because I can't get it out of my head. It's really funny. I'll look for it and see if I can find it. Fantastic. Great. That's high yeah. praise. Michael from El Cerrito, California said, what is the best bear? Jim asked Dwight on the office, all snark, knowing full well it's a stupid question, but that Dwight will contort himself in search of an answer. The choices here are as dissimilar as polar bears are to grizzlies, as Malaysian sun bears are to pandas. Not only are they awfully dissimilar, but they relate to their ancestor films in very different ways. Reboots, direct sequels, an animated feature where the age of the voice actors is irrelevant, etc. Fury Road and Toy Story 3 are great films, perhaps better than The Force Awakens, examined with a clear head. But no cast, creative team, and director took on a higher stakes, more emotionally charged sacred cow management project, or should I say sacred bear, and emerge unscathed than J.J. Abrams and company. Hmm. It's not Citizen Kane, but delivering a crowd-pleasing Star Wars film to a ravenous, multi-generational, somewhat scarred populace, a thousand laurels on Abrams' head. It required unimaginable courage, the force even. My vote goes to Star Wars. The best bear? is Oski the Bear. <laughs> so, Michael in California, Oski the Bear, it turns out after a little Googling, is the mascot for the University of California at Berkeley. Well played, Michael, and thank you to everyone who voted in that poll and who sent us feedback. That brings us to something we are so excited to share with you. It's time. You remember, last year we had so much fun with a listener suggestion. Mike Merrigan, I believe in Dover, New Hampshire? That sounds Does that sound right? right? I think so. I can't believe I'm completely blanking, Michael. I Let's apologize. Once Josh starts talking, I will, in fact, Google where you are from. But we came up with, with Mike's help, Film Spotting Madness. We took our version of March Madness, not basketball teams, but 32 beloved film spotting actors and actresses, and had the tournament, took your votes, and it all played out. By the end, yes, Film Spotting Madness champion was crowned. He was Michael Fassbender. And it wasn't as obvious as that sounds. I Didn't mean, win an Oscar, but of, he won that. He yeah, was set. Well, priorities. Yeah. A lot of bodies fell to the wayside for Fassbender to get there. That's true. He wasn't just anointed from the start. No, he was not. And we are going to go through that process again. It is coming. Well, it's really starting here in earnest. This time, not actors or actresses, but 32 directors. We have the bracket in place after much consternation and wrangling and conversation. Much, much. much. (laughs) Behind the scenes, we did have a little bit of fun there. We came up with the 32 directors, at least until I changed my mind and Sam and I start arguing about it again. We have the 32 directors. We have the seating. And maybe we don't want to share it. I was about to reveal who the top two seeds are. Do you think we should do that? No, don't don't reveal it yet. Well, the number one seed matters. It doesn't really matter for the purposes of the vote that we're about to offer to you. But whoever wins the poll question that we're about to pose, they're going to face the number one seed in the poll. This is our play-in bracket, our play-in game, just like the NCAA tournament does. And if you remember, I can't believe I'm blanking on it, but last year, I know it was Anna Kendrick. It was Anna Kendrick versus someone similar in being a young kind of up-and-coming actor. They had to battle each other out for that final spot to then face the number one seed. So we have that this time as well. And Josh, we were supposed to have this conversation before we started recording. Mm -hmm. But here we are, on-air production meeting. I wanted to pit two directors against each other. And you were on board with these two directors. Sam really pushed hard that it turns out these two filmmakers are both golden brick winners. And maybe instead of it being a deathmatch style, 
two filmmakers. Let's open it up to all the film spotting golden brick winners. You pick your favorite of these golden brick winners, and they will move on to probably get trounced by the number one seed. What so, do you think? So a poll play-in instead of a well, head-to-head play-in. Yeah, instead of a head-to-head, exactly. Okay. That unnecessarily complicates the system, so I am all in favor. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> well, with that said then, Josh... Why don't you go ahead and read the previous director winners of the film spotting Golden Brick? All of these will be options. You have to pick your favorite. Whoever gets the most votes is going to move on to face the number one seed in Film Spotting Madness, the director's edition, which we will announce, unveil in all its glory next week. In alphabetical order here, we have Andrea Arnold. She made Wuthering Heights in 2012. Sean Baker, just this past year for Tangerine. Cleo Bernard made 2011's The Arbor. Nuri Bilga Jalon. Ooh, this this is mm. kind of stands out here. I know, huh? listener's choice winner. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. For Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Duncan Jones, who made Moon in 2009. Yorgos Lanthimos in 2010. That was for Dogtooth. And a bit more recently here, 2013, Joshua Oppenheimer for The Act of Killing. And then, last choice here, Jeremy Sunier for 2014's Blue Ruin. And we should note that Bilga Jalon stands out probably just because he seems maybe a little bit more established and more formidable than some of these other more up and coming directors. Those are all of your options. And the two that I had it narrowed down to were Yorgos Lanthimos, the director of Dogtooth and Alps and The Lobster, which many people have seen, but is finally being released here in the States at some point here in the near future. I, I can't remember the, the next exact couple of weeks release date. There you go. It's coming out. We do plan to review it. And Joshua Oppenheimer, who was Oscar nominated this year for The Look of Silence, but also gave us one of the best films of 2013, hands down. I think it was in both of our top fives for that year, maybe? I believe so. The Act of Killing. So two really talented, innovative, challenging filmmakers. And I think they're the two who are going to maybe run away with this or battle it out for that first spot. But maybe not. After all the love for Sean Baker's Tangerine, he certainly has a shot as well. So if you were voting... Josh, right now, you have to give your play-in vote. How does it come out? I'm not going to say because I think there's an 80% chance this whole thing will be restructured in the next few days. How dare you? (laughs) For me, because it does come down to Lanthimos and Oppenheimer, I've really struggled with this. I mean, it's a tough play-in round to have those two filmmakers. I'm trying to imagine, and this is the way I do these rounds, and hopefully listeners approach it a similar way. You're basically deciding in comparing these two, which one do you want to continue to see making films? You want both of them to continue making films. But but, you can't have that. But you can't have that. Only one is going to keep making movies whose future movies do you not want to live without. And I can't believe I'm going against Lanthimos, but you know what gives Oppenheimer the edge here for me Hmm. is the fact that he's a documentarian. Okay. I think the fact that he's doing creative things, he's taking documentary in a different direction. He's certainly doing that. And trying different things formally. I I think that's important. I think we need voices like that in cinema. So he's my pick, but we'll see where the listeners go. That is the play-in game for Film Spotting Madness. The directors can't wait to fully unveil that next week here on the show. Vote now, please, at filmspotting.net. If you do leave some feedback, and we hope you do in the poll, please let us know where you're listening from. We're going to take the film spotting cheat to a whole nother level when we come back and ask (laughs) Chinese film. I see what you did there. Aficionado Sean Gilman to share his favorite wuxia movies. That's going to be in lieu of lists from the two of us. It's kind of a farmed out film spotting top five. That's next. Stay with us. Most of this life's been a drag of a high and lows like a blow. 
in a pit thrown title fight. Most of my sins were born in a kiss on a night like this, calling all lonely hearts. Don't you want a life like we saw on the picture show? Gratitude time here, Josh, as we thank our donors who thank us for producing the show and who so generously give a little bit of their hard-earned money to keep us doing what we're doing. First, though, a quick mention of our featured artist this week, Brian Fallon, from his new album, Painkillers. Brian Fallon, some listeners may know, is the frontman, the lead singer, and songwriter for one of my favorite bands, the Gaslight Anthem, on his own, a little bit more of a folk sound, a little bit more of a singer-songwriter sound versus the kind of edgy, little bit of punk and certainly garage band kind of feel that the Gaslight Anthem brings. I love the new tracks so far that I've heard off the album. He is going to be playing the House of Blues here in Chicago on Sunday, March 20th. Of course, Josh, I have a prior commitment and will not be able to attend. Sorry. Woe is me. More info at brianfallon.tumblr.com. Let's get to those donors, including Daniel in Trondheim, Norway. Thank you, Daniel. And Ian Galloway in Gravette, or Gravit, I'm going to say Gravette, Arkansas, which he notes is next to Bella Vista. And that cues me into the fact that Ian must be a longtime listener of the show because many, many years ago, I'm sure I brought up the fact that once my family vacationed to Bella Vista, it's a resort. We drove to Arkansas, swam. I'm sure maybe my dad and I played some golf or something, though I was pretty young. And somehow my parents got conned into buying property there. You know, this. one of those things where then <laughs> you you put money down every month and then you never go back. Mm-hmm. And why did we do that? I think I probably still own property there. I'm going to retire They must someday. have loved it. It must have been a they great must have. vacation. Ian says, I've hosted an Oscar party every year for the past nine years, and each year the theming food and costuming get larger and more elaborate. There was the silent film theme for 2012 frontrunner The Artist, plus Hugo and Midnight in Paris to a lesser extent. This year, we decided to take it down a notch and just theme the party to a specific movie theater food. We've previously done popcorn, so this year we are serving eight different gourmet hot dogs that have each been themed according to one of the Best Picture nominees. I'm pretty proud of them, but the audience for bragging rights this nerdy is pretty small. I thought you guys might get a chuckle. So Ian sent us the whole menu. I'm going to just single out three here that stood out to me that I think everyone will recognize what movie the food item ties in with. Junk Bond, drenched in brown gravy and topped with bacon, crumbled Fritos and Velveeta cubes. This cheap Oscar Mayer wiener on a white bun may feel good going down, but it's bound to hurt when the market crashes. You don't even need to read the others. That's mine. No, there you go. Brown gravy, bacon, Fritos, and Velveeta. I'm in. I'm so in, and we are so Midwestern. The Russian spy (laughs) served on a white bun with ketchup, mustard relish, and sweet onions. This Russian kielbasa sausage has been gaining access to state secrets by passing itself off as a classic (laughs) American hot dog. And the immigrant, send your huddled masses our way. We've got a 100% all-beef hot dog served New York style on a white bun with orange mustard and green sauerkraut so you can remember your heritage. (laughs) That sounds like fun. Obviously, this party already happened as of this taping. Ian, we hope it was as much of a success as the menu 
suggests it would be. Ian and his party goers are now living in deep regret is what's happening. (laughs) And we are off to Gravette, Arkansas next year for the Oscars, Josh. That's all I can say. We also got a donation from Matthew in Sacramento. He said, hey, guys, I've only been listening to the show for about a year, but I am an avid fan. Keep up the great work. Also, have you seen Stephen Chow's The Mermaid yet? It just became China's highest grossing film ever. It had a smaller release in the States, but Sony seems to have figured out that was a mistake and recently expanded it. It is a hoot. Do check it out. Do Chinese blockbusters qualify for Golden Brick Awards? Mm, I think they certainly could, though. I don't know that Stephen Chow maybe qualifies. Yeah, he has he's, a number he's made of a films. few movies, yeah. though I think we've only reviewed one of them over the years here on Film Spotting. Sam and I talked about Kung Fu Hustle oh, yeah. many years back. But The Mermaid, Matthew is actually not the only listener to bring that film up. I know very little about it, Josh. Have you tuned into that movie at all? Are you aware of it? I've only seen a few notes on Letterboxd, one very in favor and one very not in favor. Okay. So that's intriguing on its own. Wesley Harrison in Lake in the Hills, Illinois, we already heard from a little bit earlier talking about the joys of Mubi. He sends us this note along with his donation. I've been a listener for about three years now and want to thank you for all the wonderful episodes you've produced. I am an aspiring filmmaker and have made numerous short films. My skill still growing and your show is the best resource for me to celebrate my love of film. I would like to most notably thank you for introducing me to What We Do in the Shadows, a film I never would have seen without your review. Being a horror fan, that film was the second biggest treat of 2015 behind Mad Max Fury Road, and one I was hoping would win the Golden Brick Award. I apologize that over my years as a listener I haven't donated. I'm a broke college student attending NIU with a summer wedding approaching. However, this donation is long overdue. Consider it as a down payment and a promise that when I'm working a steady job, I will throw more support your way. Thanks again, and keep up the amazing work. P.S. Here's a link to my horror short film, An American Werewolf in College, that I filmed entirely on NIU's campus last year. He sent us the Vimeo link. We will link to it in our show notes. I will click on it if Wesley promises it's not as scary as The Witch sounds. Is it more like comedy scary, like what we do in the shadows, maybe? We'll have to find out. We will find out. If you want to watch it again, that Vimeo link will be in our show notes. Thank you, Wesley. And thank you as well to our last donor we'd like to thank this week, a new $5 a month subscriber, Dwight in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you, everybody who supports the show. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hello, Film Spotting Nation. This is Matt Singer from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, inviting you to listen to our latest episode where we review love. Not the abstract concept, but the new 10-episode Netflix series, co-created by Judd Apatow. And inspired by love, both the Netflix series and the abstract concept, we'll also be recommending some un- or anti-romantic comedies you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen, check us out in iTunes or at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
This is Film Spotting, and that was a clip from the trailer for 1966's Come Drink With Me from director King Hu, a seminal film in the wuxia genre of Chinese martial arts films. But don't take my word for it. We're going to have you take the word of Sean Gilman as we welcome him in from Tacoma, Washington. He is the person I've referred to, Josh, as the dean of the Film Spotting Forum. He's yes. also a longtime contributor to the Film Spotting Advisory Board, but much more significantly, he is a contributor to the Seattle screen scene and a co-host of the delightfully named George Sanders Show podcast. And we played that clip, Come Drink With Me, Sean, because you just recently published an article on your website, The End of Cinema, called 30 Essential Wuxia Films. Thank you for coming on and being our expert this week. Uh, sure. <laughs> I don't know if I am an expert, but I am certainly uh, somebody who's watched a lot of these movies. Compared to the two of us, oh yeah, go with expert. <laughs> You're definitely an expert <laughs> compared to us. And hey, you write something titled 30 Essential Wuxia Films. We're going to take you as a credible source. And we played Come Drink With Me because that's the first one you started with. You really tried, rather than ranking them, you tried to kind of paint a picture of the whole genre and the progression and the evolution of the genre, and that's a little bit what you're going to do with this top five as well, even though you are going to share your five overall favorite wuxia films. And before we get to that, let's set up a little bit here of your backstory. This seems appropriate to a wuxia discussion, that we should go back a little bit, have a flashback, and talk about how you came to these films. How did you get introduced to this genre? Well, I think like a lot of people of of our generation, we kind of watch Jackie Chan, John Woo movies on on VHS in the mid '90s. They were very popular, and uh, Wong Kar Wai films and and stuff like that. And, and so I was always kind of aware of Hong Kong films, but I never really went kind of whole hog into it until just uh, maybe three years ago. I was at the Scarecrow Video, which is this amazing video store in Seattle that has everything. And as I was walking through their their aisles, there was a Sammo Hung section. And I was like, you know, I've never seen a movie directed by Sammo Hung. So I, so I grabbed one. And when I watched it, it kind of just blew my mind. It was just, it's uh, this film called Eastern Condors, which is a Vietnam Kung Fu movie that is kind of a, like a goofy slapstick thing, but also like references the killing fields and like actual like uh, photographs of, of like horrible killings in the Vietnam War. So there's just these wild swings in tone. And I was just kind of fascinated by what Sammo was doing. And so I decided for my blog to just spend the whole summer watching Sammo Hung movies. I, I, I called it the Summer of Sammo. And I just I watched a bunch of his movies. And in order to try and understand him, I ended up having to watch a bunch of other directors' films, Jackie Chan films, films from directors that preceded Sammo, things from people that came after him. And as the the summer ended, I ended up watching like like 80 different Hong Kong films. And I wanted to keep going. So I decided to take the same approach with Johnny Toe and kind of go chronologically through Johnny Toe's career. But in order to really kind of understand that, I, I needed to watch all of the films by his contemporaries and all of the films by the people who influenced him and all the people that he influenced. So it's just been this three-year-long odyssey in Chinese language That's film. That's quite the rabbit hole you went down, John. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
leads to one, leads to the other, leads to another one, which which all sounds great. If if we backed up a little bit, and I'm not sure how many of those would fit in the actual wuxia genre, but Adam and I have been throwing the word around a little bit on this episode already and hinting at some elements that belong to that genre, but how would you define it? What What's a good working definition of a wuxia film, would you say? Well, uh, wuxia films are, are they're martial arts films, but they're usually separated from kung fu films. And the kind of the easy difference between them is that, that in wuxia, the, the fighters have swords and in kung fu, they have fists. There's a lot more that goes into it than that. Their wuxia films are they're concerned with chivalry. They're stories about knights errant. They're, they're based in Chinese literature that goes back more than 2,000 years. Whereas kung fu films are, are a much more modern invention and the emphasis is less on kind of the ideology and the philosophy of, of chivalry and, and honor as it is on the actual technique of fighting. And so in, in wuxia films, there's a lot of fantasy elements. There's special effects. There's wire stunts. Uh, people fly around. They can shoot like chi energy out of their hands. They're fantasy films, whereas kung fu films tend towards realism. There's an attempt to kind of capture the actual physical skill of the performer on screen. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get to our top five. And we should say your top five. And it's inspired by our review earlier in the show of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. And I just can't help but get this in real quick, Josh, that gleaning from Letterboxd, where you can follow Sean at the end of cinema on that site, Three stars for Sword of Destiny, just like me. He yeah, liked it. I saw liked that. it well enough, yeah. right? Not probably an essential wuxia film, you would say, Sean, but also maybe worth actually the hour and forty minutes if you have it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely weird to see those people, you know, speaking in English. Uh, is very uh, abnormal. Not that Michelle Yeoh and Donnie Yen don't speak perfectly fine English. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something. Something seems off about Sword of Destiny. It's not quite the film that it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I kind of get into that in, in my review is just kind of uh, the way the way it ends. I was dissatisfied. I can definitely see that. Well, let's get into your picks. Again, your five favorite, the most essential wuxia films. And I know you have one of these five that really stands out as the number one, but we're going to go in chronological order. Sean, take it away. What's your number five? So number five, I'm going with uh, The Heroic Ones, a 1970 film by the director Chang Che. And like you said, uh, Come Drink With Me was kind of the key film that started a cycle of Vuja films at Shaw Brothers and, and then in other studios. And the other film that kind of kicked that off was Chang Che's The One-Armed Swordsman, which uh, came out in 1967. And those two films together kind of defined what the genre would be like. And in picking just one Chang Che film is, is like impossible. The guy was incredibly prolific. From, from 1967 to 1976, he directed 53 feature films. Wow. And then kind of slowed down for the next decade after that. But it's just an unprecedented amount of work from one filmmaker. Mm-hmm. His films, he, they're kind of split evenly between wuxia and, and kung fu films. He got into the kung fu films later. And his early films are all choreographed by Lau Kar Lung, who would go on to be like the, the most important kung fu director. He did 36 Chamber of Shaolin, A Diagram Pole Fighter, films like that. 
The Heroic Ones is based on a true story from the end of the Tong Dynasty and is about a uh, barbarian general who is invited into China to help liberate the capital city from a bandit who has taken it over. And he's brought along his 13 sons and adopted sons who are his generals. So the film is kind of the celebration of all of the martial virtues. Like Chang Che, his heroes live by like this very strict code of honor and they always follow that and it always kind of ends up destroying them. Like the very striking image in, in Chang Che movies are, are when his heroes die and, and they almost always die, they die standing up. Like they don't fall over, they just stand in place frozen. And there's a, a great image of that in, in this mm-hmm. film. Do you think the heroic ones would be a good place to start if someone wanted to attack this chronologically? I think the one-armed swordsman would probably be the better way to go or or come drink with me. I think those are like, if you want to start like at the beginning, those are the key films. The heroic ones has a lot of great action. There's even like a little bit of romance. One, one of the, the things that, about Hong Kong films that are always weird for Western viewers is how much of different styles of film are mixed into a single film. They try and, and throw everything all together. So you have this like historical story that's really violent and bloody and all about these like manly virtues. But there's also like a, a three-minute dance sequence. Or there's like a really poetic moment of, of romance between one of the stars and, and the one female character in the movie. Hmm. So there's a lot to it. I think it's a, either this or the one-armed source and it would probably be the best way to start with Chang Che. Sean, what about your next pick? What's your number four? The next one is is actually my favorite of all of Wuxia films, and that is King Who's A Touch of Zen. It was just released on DVD, and there's been a touring restoration of it that's been around going around the country for a while. It was just put out on Blu-ray and DVD by the Masters of Cinema Company, and it's rumored to be coming to Criterion, but I, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath. King Who is kind of the link between the the musicals that Shaw Brothers specialized in in the 1950s and 60s and the martial arts films that they became known for. He, he got started in musicals. He was assistant director to the top musicals director for Shaw Brothers. And then with Come Drink With Me, he transitioned in to martial arts films. And the star of Come Drink With Me is Cheng Pei Pei, who uh, you'll know from the original Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She plays uh, Jiang Ziyi's evil master. And she's not a trained martial artist at all. She was trained as a dancer. And King Hu just kind of taught her the right movements. And he would adapt this kind of balletic style of, of movement to the action film. And he would continue to do that throughout his career. Like his, his movies are always really notable for their female heroes. And uh, A Touch of Zen is no different, except it's also a bunch of other stuff too. It's it's three hours long, which is really unusual for a Hong Kong film, especially a Wuxia film. They're almost always 100 minutes or less. But A Touch of Zen is a very strange film as it, it kind of progresses from very kind of hard-nosed, realist, mystery-type film through to this kind of religious abstraction. Also sounds fascinating, and that's about the best we can chime in with here, because the reason we brought you on is these films are virtually unknown to us, unfortunately. When you publish your list of the 30 essential wuxia films, Josh, what was your count? You had seen three of them or I four? I saw four, yeah. And I had seen two. One of them we're going to get to in a moment. The other was... Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But that's going to change here as we get to your next couple of picks. At least one of us or both of us has seen these next two in your chronology. Sean, why don't you go ahead and share your number three? Number three is Ashes of Time, the Wong Kar Wai film from 1994. And this is uh, Wong Kar Wai is adapting 
a series of novels called Legend of the Condor Heroes that's by a, a, a very important 20th century Wuja author called Louis Cha. And what he's basically doing is he's taking the characters from that novel and then inserting them into a typical Wong Kar Wai narrative where you have uh, Leslie Chung living in this kind of tavern slash inn out in the middle of nowhere. And he works as like an agent for traveling swordsmen. He kind of hires them out to work as uh, assassins or protectors for various people who need a hired sword. And all of the, the various characters that he meet have a kind of romantic trauma in their past that they're attempting to get over, which is what like every Wong Kar Wai movie is about. And it's all, it, it, it's got the, the typical Wong Kar Wai narration. It's got just gorgeous Christopher Doyle cinematography, which is even more phantasmagoric in the, in the Redux version where they really kind of crank up the, the digital color timing to just make everything look just kind of electric and bizarre. And the fight choreography is done really interestingly. It's, it's done by Samuel Hung and you can kind of see his choreography, but it's all blurred and cut up in really striking ways in the same way that, that Christopher Doyle like will, would blur images in, in Chunking Express or something so that it's more expressive, but the heart of the actual like fight choreography is still there. Ashes of Time was like a legendarily troubled shoot. It took long forever to do it. While he was making it in order to recoup some of the costs, he and his producer, Jeffrey Lau, made a parody of the same source material called uh, The Eagle Shooting Heroes, which is really funny and is recommended for anyone who wants to see uh, Tony Lung act like a duck. Who doesn't? And uh, also during the editing of Ashes of Time, because Wong was having a really hard time putting it together, he took a break and went and, and just on a lark made Chunking Express. You know, just the, the second greatest movie of all time. After after Seven Samurai, Adam. <laughs> How dare you? Ashes of Time is the uh, one that I was able to catch over the weekend, Sean. And I actually called dibs on it when you gave your list. I thought, oh, a chance to catch up with a Wong Kar Wai that I haven't seen. I want that one. And your description is, you know, dead on with the fight scenes. They're they're almost abstract, really. And the, the fighters become these smears on the screen with the use of color. That's one thing I did want to ask you is the version I saw, I think, was the Redux version. And that color, the way it was just, um, it was so vibrant and so rich, but also bleary in a way that you wonder at times if it was a mistake. I mean, if it was a mistake, it still had this effect of really putting you in this otherworldly space. But I did wonder how much of that was intentional. So it sounds like it, it very much was, huh? Yeah, like there was never a good DVD of the original version of Ashes of Time. The only English subtitle DVD was was in really poor condition. So it's hard to say comparing like the original DVD to the Redux version, hmm. what was intentional and what was just like a bad transfer of the original DVD. Because if you, if you watch the original version, the colors are all very pale. There's there's none of like the bright yellows and oranges and blues that you, yeah, that you see in the Redux version. It's much more pale and gray and, and, and black. The blurriness is still there. But I don't know if the colors in the Redux version. I mean, I know I'm positive they are not true to the like original theatrical version. Sure. But I don't know how much more turned up they are. Well, it's quite a vision. I mean, it. I would not suggest that as a place to start because in terms of you know trying to follow these character stories alone, it it is a chore. But it you know it does make sense 
afterwards. And it also, as you said, makes sense within the rest of Wong's films as well. So I'm really glad I was able to see it. So I misspoke a little bit there, Sean, as we have one more pick here before we get to your final choice. It is Unseen by the two of us, a 1995 film from the director Choi Hark. Yeah, uh, this is uh, The Blade, which I don't blame you for not having seen it because it, it is very hard to find. But it is it's really remarkable. It's it's kind of a, a remake of the one-armed swordsman, but Choi was seemingly kind of inspired by Ashes of Time and wanted to make a really, really distinctive Wuxia film. And Choi Hark is one of, if not like the key director to Hong Kong cinema, he's one of the key directors of, of world cinema. The guy is amazing. He, uh, he's like, like, you remember like uh, Sam Raimi in like the first Evil Dead, how he's just like wildly creative. Imagine that, but like totally politically conscious or maybe like a Howard Hawks combined with Sam Peckinpah, and, and that's Choi Hark. He's worked in a, a massive variety of genres, and he's, he's like the leading figure of the Hong Kong New Wave, which came about in, in the late 1970s, as there was this generation of, of young directors who moved from television into film. And like, like most Dune Waves, what they wanted to do was bring a new kind of realism into old generic forms. And... Uh, they would do that by like shooting with direct sound, which, which all Hong Kong films were like post dubbed later. They shoot with direct sound. They'd have like handheld cameras and the you know, same kind of stuff that the French New Wave was doing, but they did it in Hong Kong. One of the things that, that Choi also did was uh, in, in 1983, he made a movie called uh, Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, which is just an, a crazy special effects driven fantasy film in which he imported Hollywood special effects technicians. And then that film kind of inspired John Carpenter to make uh, Big Trouble in Little China. But here in 1995, Choi has gone through like several different personas. And, and at this point, he wants to remake the one-armed swordsman. And he does so by taking kind of the the dark heart of Chang Che's film, kind of the the violence and, and the nihilism in, inherent in these stories of, of people who follow these codes to their own destruction and just turning it up to 11. So it's, it's incredibly bloody and bleak. And like in uh, Ashes of Time, there are smears of, of colors and quick cuts and you don't really know exactly what's happening it's just this this world of action but it's really immersive and it's really a, a a breathtaking film like ashes of time it was not really all that popular uh and people didn't really kind of follow in this style of making wuxia films they uh five years later crouching tiger hidden dragon came around and that proved a much more more popular version of wuxia mm -hmm. film more kind of art house friendly than these really kind of angry bloody weird abstract action films that that wong and, and and choi made your final selection your top five wuxia films going with a film from 2015 that was reviewed favorably here on the show to the best of our abilities josh in fact loved it so much that he rated it among the top 10 films of the year from ho shao shen yeah the uh, the assassin was, was actually my number one film of last year and it's I mean, it's hard for me to be objective about this because Ho is one of my favorite filmmakers, and and obviously this is a genre that I've been studying for three years. So this movie is like designed for me to like it. But what it does, like you you guys already talked about, it, it's the story of a woman who uh, has been trained as an assassin, but she's not sure that she wants to do that anymore. And it's told in this very kind of laconic style with these very patient, long takes that are very kind of immersive, drawing you into this world that is Ho's style in, in all of his other films. But unlike 
Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to some extent, and, and much more Jenny Mo's uh, hero in House of Flying Daggers. I think The Assassin is really engaging with the wuja genre on on like a fundamental level on this conflict between uh the idea of duty and like wuja films are drawn between our the central conflict is the desire to kind of escape from worldly concerns and the demands of of duty that you go out and seek revenge and so the heroes even when they end they're still stuck in this cycle of violence the Assassin is the first Wuja film I can think of where the hero actually finds a way out of that cycle where she just kind of rejects this duty to her master in, in order to kind of invent a whole a new life for herself. And I don't know that I before, like even even King Hu's films, even like Zhang Ziyi and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the female heroes still end up stuck in this whole world. But the Shu Chi character and the assassin really, I think, succeeds where, where all of the previous Wuxia heroes have failed. And another very inventive handling of the fight sequences as well, where some of them are from such a great distance, you, you don't you can't really make out exactly what is happening. And it just it makes you settle in and take in this whole world from a different perspective than certainly a Hollywood action film would give you or even some of the other wuxia films that I've seen give you. Right, because it, it doesn't want to suck you into the action and give you a, a visceral thrill out of it. It wants mm-hmm. you to look at it and, and really kind of think about the, the violence that you're seeing and whether it's worth it. Whereas even even like the most brutal Chang Che films, you get there's like this you know sensational thrill you get from watching fighters fight on screen it's like the francois Truffaut thing about how you can't make a truly anti-war film because film glorifies everything it sees like ho's trying to get around that he's not trying to glorify the violence because it's a world that he doesn't want his heroine doesn't want to be a part of anymore hmm. those are the top five wuxia films according to our guest sean gilman if you want to become more familiar with some of those titles we will share them at our top five page over at filmspotting.net and we will link to Sean's article the 30 essential wuxia films in our show notes as well this was an education to say the least Sam our producer put it so appropriately as he often does he said that having you on Sean was like doing a film spotting marathon without actually having to watch any of the films (laughs) and that is how it ended up so thank you for that well you know Adam I've been trying to get you to do a marathon of Chinese films Uh for like almost 10 years now yep. so and he just tricked you now <laughs> yeah exactly and, and now this it's was, done this was all a trap sean <laughs> thank you very much sean really appreciate your time and your insight and your knowledge where can people find you online on twitter and find your podcast well uh we have uh, the seattlescreenscene.com, which kind of focuses on what's playing in seattle but we write about movies that are playing all over the place most of my stuff on Chinese cinema is on theendofcinema.net, and I'm on Twitter at The End of Cinema. Again, thank you. It was great to have you on. Let's do it again sometime. Anytime. All right. Send your picks. If you are a wuxia expert, or maybe if you've at least seen more than Josh and I have, you can send those picks to feedback at filmspotting.net. And really, all jokes aside, we kind of weaseled our way out of doing a top five, but the real truth is that we recognized that we needed to be edified in this 
genre, this subgenre of martial arts films, and Sean was the perfect person to do it. If we need to be edified, that usually means that there's a good portion of our audience that may need to be edified as well, and I hope they were, and I hope they are encouraged to seek out some of those films that Sean mentioned. If you do, let us know what you thought of them. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744, and you might just hear it featured on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. At Film Spotting is Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, take a moment to vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which Golden Brick winning director should get to play in the upcoming Film Spotting Madness, The Directors. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit with Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, and The Next Picture Show with those fine folks formerly of The Dissolve. You can find both in iTunes. Out in limited release opening here in Chicago this weekend The Wave the disaster movie from Norway didn't that open last week I don't think it opened last week we gave away some passes that's what I'm thinking last of. week that's okay. it out in wide release London has fallen thank God for Gerard Butler he discovers a plot to assassinate all the world's leaders this is what's confusing me wasn't he just in something last week too he was gods of Egypt in like a loincloth? Is he in a loincloth in this one too? <laughs> He'll eventually end up in a loincloth. He has to. It's in his contract. Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot, based on the memoir of a journalist who covered the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan, starring Tina Fey from the directors of Crazy Stupid Love and the animated film Zootopia. We will not be discussing Gerard Butler in or out of a loincloth or... Tina Fey in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Instead, we're going to dive into the third film in our Elaine May Marathon, Mikey and Nikki. And the top five, we considered the top five films of 1976, the year it came out. We may also go, though, with the top five actors of the 70s. That sounds a little bit more fun. If you have any thoughts, want to weigh in before we make the mistakes that we will inevitably make in forming our list, again, Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week comes from Brian Fallon. It's from his new album, Painkillers. There's more information at brianfallon.tumblr.com. For Film Spotting, Filmspotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.